Last week we saw in Isaiah 1 through 1, 1 through 2, 5, what I call the little microcosm of the book, kind of like a miniature form of what we would see throughout the entire book of Isaiah. This week we are going to talk a little bit again about chapter 1, but because I talked about that last week, I'm going to basically summarize it, and then we're going to continue and talk about also and most mostly 2 through 5. But I want to um, think about it as an entirety as we go back into these chapters. And what I subtitled this sermon today is a backdrop of darkness. I know I have a cozy cottage backdrop behind me. So so work with me. Um, imagine this is all darkened. Um, but today we're going to be thinking about these opening chapters as a backdrop of darkness. And the arrangement of this material and what is going on in these first five chapters reminds me a bit of what is, I would honestly say, overdone, but can be well done, is a uh, theme in a lot of movies these last few years where you start off the movie, the movie opens with a jump right into this intense action scene that leads into this ominous cliffhanger where it just looks like, okay, everything's going wrong. How, how is this going to end up well? How is the hero or the, the heroine not going to die? Because you have this like just cliffhanging darkness. And then the credits come and then it rewinds all the way back to the beginning. That's actually pretty much what you have going on in the first five chapters of Isaiah. And I'm going to kind of show that to us as we walk through these opening chapters. But I think it's just really cool. Um, we still do that today. And all the way back thousands of years ago, that's effectively what you have in the book of Isaiah. So nothing new under the sun, just like Caleb said in Ecclesiastes. But these five chapters, there are visions of hope, yes, woven throughout these chapters. We talked about that a bit last week. But the end of the section especially, and we read the first few verses of that in 5, 1 through 7, but the end of the section, chapter 5 as a whole, is very grim. And we'll read more of it later today. Darkness seems to have the last word in these opening chapters. We end on basically a cliffhanger. The question that should be hanging in your mind at the end of these chapters, at the end of this five-chapter introduction to Isaiah, is how on earth are these promises of God going to come true? How can light come out of this darkness? That is a question the book of Isaiah will begin to answer in chapter 6, which we will address next week, and we'll keep going through that. But today we're just going to hang out in the darkness a bit and see what's going on. So, like I mentioned earlier, we already looked at chapter 1 last week, so just by way of summary, chapter 1 is basically a State of the Union address in which the Lord, rather than the President, the Lord thoroughly condemns what his people, his children, have become. Their society is corrupt and wicked. And because of this, their worship has become empty and worthless. It is vain actions without any heart behind it. Yet even in the middle of these scathing words, we saw that the Lord has not abandoned his people. You see that in chapter 9, that he has promised to keep a remnant. And we see that he will not abandon his people. And we saw that in 25 to 28, how this corrupt, unfaithful city will somehow become a faithful city through the purging work of the Lord. And even in the midst of these scathing words, because he does not hold back when he's talking to the people and their fake worship, even in the middle of this, in 1 verse 18, we see him invite them to come back to him. It says, come, reason. Though your sins are red as scarlet, they will be white. He invites them to come back to him, even, even these same people that he is condemning. And he's, he promises that the unfaithful city will once again become the faithful city. So that was chapter 1. And as we work forward, Isaiah 2 through 4 form the next section of these introductory chapters. And I'll get to some outlines in a bit. I was going to not do a PowerPoint today, but then as I was reading through my notes again, I'm like, I can barely follow that without a visual of an outline. So I'm going to help you as we go and we'll put some different outlines up of these five chapters. And uh, spoiler, there's, there's a reason a lot of commentators really use the word chiasm a lot in Isaiah, which is basically like the argument works down and then works back in a mirror of itself or from your side, sorry, works that way and then back. Um, but 
chiasm, Isaiah is basically one large chiasm, and then it's chiasms within chiasms within chiasms. So like if you if you see the outlines start looking all the same in their shape, there's a reason for that. Isaiah does a lot of chiasms, and we'll get there. Um, but anyways, Isaiah 2 through 4 forms the next section of these opening chapters and opens with a thrilling vision of a new restored Jerusalem or faithful city, kind of picking up again on the theme of ending in chapter 1, a new restored Jerusalem that is a rallying point to the whole world. It is a city of universal truth and peace and established and elevated on the highest mountain, as you see in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, that we also looked at next, or last week. So that's how the, this section opens, this thrilling vision of this elevated Jerusalem that all the nations are coming to to get the teachings of the Lord and walk in his light. Far removed from this vision, though, the text dives right back down to the depravity of the people and the judgment that will come to them, starting right again in 2.6 and going all the way to 4.1. I want to take a minute first, though, before we get into the content of these chapters and later chapter 5, I want to take a minute first to talk about the chapter and verse and stanza divisions, which I know a lot of you just checked out. Um, the reason I want to do this is that it actually becomes kind of important, especially in a book that has poetry and lots of other literary features, how the book is divided up, and you will see differences between different translations and editions, how the book is broken up by chapter, verse, and stanza, which stanza, by the way, if you um, depending on how your Bible is formatted, like I'm looking at the ESV and in Isaiah, there's a lot of like the, all the text is in the center, basically like lines of a poem. And then those are broken up into like paragraphs where it's like group, blank space, group. Those are stanzas. And then you see that in like poems, in parables, in basically anything that's in the poetic genre, like in the big large category of poem, you'll see a lot of this throughout Isaiah. How that's broken up is actually different between translations. And as Caleb and I have pointed out many times, the chapter and the verse divisions are not inspired and were not original. They were established by tradition, and they are very helpful for locating where a certain verse or a certain content is in the Bible, but they can actually be unhelpful at times in trying to follow the flow of the text. Um, one thing that we bring up a lot, and you saw it a lot in how Caleb and I even divide out our sermons, is a lot of times we'll like go into slightly just the first part of the next chapter, because in a narrative, sometimes the chapter divisions are really annoying because they like break up the scene. And you're like, well, let's finish the scene, and then that's where we'll stop. So again, they can be unhelpful, but as far as locating, they definitely are helpful in that way. For books like Isaiah that contain a lot of poetry and other literary features, there are, again, these further layers of divisions seen in the stanzas. Um, and they're there were traditions behind all this, by the way, like where we get our chapter and our verse divisions, like those were technically formalized around like 1200 for the chapters and I think like 1500 for the verses, but there were traditions long standing well before that. So they weren't like invented at that time. Um, and there were also traditions for the stanzas. Um, the chapter and verse divisions are basically universally accepted. The stanzas, not so much. So if you look at different translations, how all the groupings of the poems are broken up will be a bit different based on if you're looking like the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, KJV, like whatever you're looking at, you're going to see different stanza divisions. And the reason that I bring this up here before we get into the content is that you, um, like I've said a few times, you, you are going to see a variety in especially chapters two through four, a variety of how the stanzas are broken up. And I would also argue that as you look through chapters two through four, I would go, I'm, I'm going to argue, and I'm not the only one that does this because you will see actually different translations kind of do this and how they arrange the stanzas, but I'm going to argue that 2.22, so the last verse of chapter 2, should go as 3.1, and then also 4.1 should be the last verse of chapter 3. So really chapter 3 should be two verses longer in order to help us better follow what Isaiah is saying. Now, there are many opinions. To me, that's just, that was the best argument I came across to explain what was going on. So that's what I'm going with as I explain this. If you have interacted with a different way of looking at the text, that is also fine. Um, but that's the reason I bring this up before we begin, is that I'm going to work through it in that way. Um, and then also different translations will have 2 verse 5, and that's actually the ESV does this. 2 verse 5 is, kind of see how it's off on its own? If you're looking at the ESV, there's like a blank space above and below it. It's like its own stanza. And then some translations will also do that with 
2, verse 22. The ESV does and the ESV puts it with the stanza before it. Uh, but you'll see different translations put 2.5 or 2.22 with the stanza before or after or on their own. So that should tell you something's going on with 2.5 and 2.22. And we'll get there. And then also around these verses, you see the different translations will put their headings, like um, ESV above chapter 2 puts the mountain of the Lord, and then the next heading is in verse 6, the day of the Lord. Uh, different translations will place those headings at different places. So all that to say... What on earth is going on with these verses? I'm going to walk through the best that I can. So this is where our first outline will come in. The best explanation that I have read and interacted with um, to help us see what is going on with these verses is that um, 2.1 is not there. 2.1 is the header, so I didn't bother putting that in the outline just for the sake of room. Um, but 2.1 is the heading. And then you have a vision of the restored, elevated Jerusalem in 2, 2 through 4. And then I would say that in 2.5 through 2.21, you have a call to the people to walk in the light of the Lord. And you have this call in 2.5. That's why I kind of put it off by itself. Um, you have a call to people to walk in the light of the Lord. 2.5 says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then you have in 6.4, you have rejected the people, the house of Jacob. And then it's basically like this condemnation for not walking in the light of the Lord. It's a judgment on idolatry, which is the opposite of walking in God's light. Um, and then in 2.22 um, through 4.1, you have a call to the people to stop finding their security in man. And you have this call in 2.22. Um, so 2.22 says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? So I would say this is a call, 2.22 is kind of off of its own, a call to stop um, relying on, on human, um, sorry, stop relying on human, word, sorry. Um, it's basically just don't rely on human strength, human ability, yourself, um, basically. Um, and then in the next verses there, in 3.1 through 4.1, you have a condemnation of people for finding security in political and military power and possessions and pleasure. The people are condemned and promised judgment for their pride, their arrogance, their rebellion, and their sin. And then in four. 2 through 6, you have another vision of the restored and purified Jerusalem, where God will once again dwell with his people to an even greater extent than he had ever done before. So that is basically the outline of chapters 2 through chapters 4, verse 6, uh, which is the end of chapter 4. 4 is a very short chapter. Um, within these chapters, you have two themes of opposites that help us to understand what is being said. And the key to these two themes is actually found, ironically, because Isaiah likes to arrange things kind of mirroring each other, you find the two keys at the very beginning and then at the very end of these chapters. So the first pair of opposites is found in 2, 2 through 2, 21. Because what you're going to see is the pair of opposites, what they do is if you look at that outline, the, the vision of Jerusalem, this is the beginning and the end, pairs with the condemnation that's immediately after it for the first one or before it for the last one. So they kind of pair and mirror each other. So 2.2 2 through 2.21, you have a pair of opposites that is the exalted and the humbled. And the key to this is actually something I talked a little bit about last week, and I'm going to talk more about it today. The key is 2.2, 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations will flow to it. The the key here is this theme of being exalted and lifted and established. So that's where like the opening key comes in. Okay, that's going to be thematic for what's going to be happening in this section. I mentioned last week that the religions of the day depicted gods as living on sacred mountains and hills. So to, the say, to say that the Lord's mountain will be lifted up was another way of saying in the ancient religion that he will be lifted up and seen as the highest, the only true God. That's why his mountain's going to be higher than all the other mountains. One of the main reasons that I think that this helps us to understand what is going on in the text is that this idea started in 2.2 is then picked up as a recurring theme in 2.6 through 21. Again and again, in these verses, we read that the idols of man and what man idolizes will be brought low and will pass away as the Lord alone is lifted high. 
the pride of mankind that leads to idolatry in any number of things. If you look through these verses, you have so many things that man, like you have literal idols that are talked about, um, and then you also have things that man idolizes that are talked about. And if you look through it, you see this phrase, uh, kind of like a, a repeated drumbeat that comes up. Um, you have a talk about idols and talk about silver and gold and seven all the way down through 11. And then you see, as you just kind of skim through those words, like man is humbled, each one is brought low, do not forgive them. They enter the rocks and hide in the dust. And then 11, the haughty looks of man are brought low, the lofty pride of men is humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted. So you have this constant back and forth in these, in these texts. And then if you look at the next section, does the same exact thing. What the idols of man, what man, what man idolizes are verbally brought low and God is brought high. God is exalted. In the next section, you see against the cedars that are high and lifted up and against all the oaks, against all the lofty mountains, against the uplifted hills, against every high tower, fortified wall, the ships, basically taking all of these things that man would idolize as status symbols of wealth and power and security. God says all of these things are going to be brought low. And then 18, he brings it back home again. The idols shall utterly pass away. The people shall enter into caves and holes in the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter to the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the hills from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. So even in talking about, like, the, in the, even in the action verbs of the sentence, you have a constant rise, you've exalted, you've lifted up, you've brought low, you've humbled. You have this opposing theme that is seen again and again in this section. The pride of man that leads to idolatry in any number of these things that we ourselves create as we seek to give ourselves security, pleasure, power, and purpose. All of these things are brought low in God, the creator of all these things. God is seen to be the only one worthy of worship. The irony of this is made explicit in 2, 8 through 9. It says, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. The irony is that we lower ourselves by worshiping the very things that we ourselves made with our own hands. We worship the creation. In fact, the things that we created, rather than the creator. We were made in the image of God to image him. We were made as his royal imagers to be stewards of the earth. And then we take that earth that we're supposed to steward and we make images and idols of it and put ourselves below it rather than worshiping God and being stewards of him. So this whole first section here, 2.2 through 2.21, has this opposing theme of brought low and lifted high. And then you have, starting in 2.22, and then going through 4.6, you have another pair of opposites. And this one's going to take a little bit of explaining, and we'll get there. But the pair of opposites in 2.22 through 4.6 is rejection and marriage. And we're going to see that the key to this is actually a little word in 4.5. In 4 5, it says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining and a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. This word canopy is actually a word that means bridal chamber. It's actually the image being brought up is a marriage ceremony that is happening. Okay, so what does that have to do with this section? Let's start back at the beginning and see what's going on. Just as um, two, two through twenty-one had the opposite, or the theme of opposites brought low, exalted. So this section has opposites, rejection, and marriage. Two twenty-two calls the people to not put their trust in man. You see that in two twenty-two, stop regarding man whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? What's interesting is the irony of what's being pointed out. Is stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath. The implication there is man has to breathe. And we see many times in scripture that breath itself is a gift of God. So remember how you put yourself below the creation. You're supposed to be looking at the creator. Well, now you're relying on humans who God gave breath. So 
you're really still missing the mark here with where you are putting your reliance. So he says, stop regarding man whose natural is breath, for what account is he? And then in 3-1 through 4-1, you have a series of poems and a court scene that boil down to basically God taking away, rejecting, and judging the leadership and the prominent people of the city, both male and female. And I'm going to show another outline here that's going to be helpful as we work through this section here. Again, another chiasm, surprise. Uh, but as we work through this section, 3-8 through 15 sits at the center and gives us the reasoning for God's verdict and declares that he has entered into judgment. So again, with the stanzas not being super helpful, in the ESV 8 is with the previous stanza, I'd argue it goes with the stanza in the middle here, or the two stanzas in the middle. So starting at 3.8, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them, and they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. So remember how earlier in chapter 1 we were told that or they were addressed as Sodom and Gomorrah, which was this like threat of total destruction. But even in that chapter, you have like, the, the promise that there's going to be this remnant and the unfaithful city will become a faithful city. Well, here again, you have this Sodom theme that keeps coming up, which pay attention to in Isaiah because he keeps doing that. He plants this seed of a theme and then he keeps bringing it up again and again and again throughout the book. So he says, they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. So the people are sinning and they're not even trying to hide it. They're acting and living just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah and they're just declaring it, that that's how they want to live. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what their hands have dealt out shall be done to them. My people, infants are their oppressors. Which, the word infants here, by the way, is kind of a comical imagery, but it's actually, like, the word here basically means, like, the inexperienced, the ill-equipped, the people who should not be in charge and have no idea what they're doing. They are the oppressors. And women rule over them, which is a cultural thing, uh, basically because at the time, men were the leaders and the providers of the society. So basically, what the point is that there is a reversal here that has happened. And uh, it says, Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, which in the Hebrew there is even more beautiful. But basically, the ones who are supposed to be guiding you are guiding you astray, is what's happening in the wording there. And they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge his people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of the people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing the people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is his reasoning in the fact that he is standing in judgment, ready to judge. This is the center. And then around this... um, section here at the center surrounding this you have in 3 1 to 7 an address to the leading men and that says that the leaders will be taken away and those who are left will become desperate for any sort of leadership but the leadership will fall into corruption and chaos that's what you see in 3 1 through 7 and then on the other side of this you have 3 16 through 4 1 on uh, before this judge um, standing in judgment scene in 3 1 through 7 you have the men and now afterwards you're going to have the women 316 to 4.1 addresses the prominent women and says that their symbols and possessions of prominence, power, and security are all going to be taken away. They will become desperate for one man to marry many of them, which to us sounds weird, but like that's basically what, what's happening here is that was the societal safety net. That was like the social security of the day, if you will, is like men in the culture were the providers. So basically what he's saying is that the society is going to be so broken, so poor, so destitute that women are going to be looking for one man to take care of many of them because many of their men are going to be exiled, going to be taken away, going to be killed. They will have, there will be no security and no provision and they will be desperate, many women, to go even to just one man to have some sort of semblance of stability and um, some sort of semblance of provision. And that's also what you have, by the way, in the other side of it too. Uh, if you look at both sides, you have this, this phrase here, we'll take hold of. In 3, 6, you have a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, look, you have a cloak. Be our ruler of this heap of ruins. It should be under your rule. And then on the other side of it, in 4, 1, 
you have seven women shall take hold of. So the phrase take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only be called, let us be called by your name. Take away our approach. In both of these, this take hold of is trying to convey the idea of complete desperation. A complete devastation and travesty of what is what was the security of the people. So on the on the first part of it, to the men, it says, you will be so desperate for leadership and security of any sort that you will look to your brother and say, you have a coat. You can be a leader. Like, there's no qualifications anymore. Just give us leadership. And then on the other side, to the women, there's several women going to one men and saying, look, we'll, we'll provide for ourselves. Just let us take your name. Like, give us some sort of semblance of security. So you just have this complete desperation on both sides of this judgment from the Lord. And then what's interesting is that in 4.1, you have this idea of this desperate marriage actually transitions beautifully into 4.2 to 4.6. Because this section here, this second vision of Jerusalem, is actually centered around the idea of God's provision and marriage or union with God. The marriage of desperation and no provision, they, had a, they were saying, we'll, we'll bring all of our own stuff in 4.1, turns into a beautiful picture of provision and marriage that honestly 4.2 through 6 could be an entire sermon all on their own with the imagery that happens in every single verse here. But to summarize what is happening, verse 2 says that in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful. What's kind of unhelpful here about the translation is the word branch is actually a word that can also be translated as shoot. And that's kind of a theme that we're going to see a few times in Isaiah, and we see it in a few of the other prophets as well. I think it would have been more helpful if the translators would just, every time we have this word, it is technically a different word than Isaiah 11, 1, but the two different words mean the same thing. So when you read branch here in 4.2, read shoot. In that day, the shoot of the Lord shall become beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. Remember all those strong trees like the oaks and the cedars and all these other giant big trees that all the people were relying on and idolizing for their strength and renown and prestige that they brought? Yeah, that's actually not going to be what the people need at all. They're going to need what this little shoot can provide. That's going to be the provision that the people need. And then in verses 3 through 4, we read, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded in, the, in recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem, from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. In 3 through 4, we see that those who are left in this holy city will themselves become holy after a cleansing work of judgment by God. There is a cleansing work, a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, which that's, that's a theme that we could again camp on for a while. Think Pentecost, think spirit, spirit of fire resting on the people. Um, but that's that's free. I'm not going to dwell on that one too much. Um, but in these verses, you have this cleansing work that causes those who are left in the holy city to be holy. And then in verses 5 through 6, it says that there will be a cloud by day and a fire by night. It says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. We read that there will be a cloud by day and fire by night over all who are in the holy city. What's interesting, I just did a series on Exodus. And remember that cloud and that fire? Was that over everybody? It was over the tent of meeting in the center of the camp, which was separated off from the people. And in order to get to where the smoke and the fire were coming from, you had to go through two layers of cherubim who were guarding the way through the imagery of the curtains. 
and you had to be the high priest. And even to do that, you could only do it one day of the year and in the perfect way. And if you didn't do it the right way, you're dead. Yet that smoke and that fire is now over everybody. This is a new work. This is a better work. And over all, there will be a canopy, or like I mentioned earlier, there will be a bridal chamber as they enter into eternal union marriage with God. Over all, there will be a booth for shade and for, and for shade and for refuge. You have all this amazing imagery, and then at the end you're like a booth, and you're like, well, that's kind of underwhelming. Why are we, why are we ending this grand vision with a booth? The word is almost exclusively used for the Feast of Booths, which is, I think, entirely appropriate because the Feast of Booths celebrated the gathering of the harvest, which is a biblical theme that's used many times for the end of time, the gathering of the harvest, when God gathers his people to himself. It's also, the Feast of Booths also celebrates God's provision and protection for the people as he brings them into the promised land. There's another tie-in right there. You see this, what seems underwhelming to us is only underwhelming if we miss the imagery of what's going on. This is the people who are cleansed and purified, brought into forever union with God in his presence, under his cloud by day and fire by night, in presence with him, unified forever in the promised land. That's what all these images are working together to say. So you have this beautiful image in chapter 4. And then you get to chapter 5. And chapter 5, 1 through 30, closes the opening chapters with a parable about a vineyard that was read. And then this parable is then explained in verses 8 through 30. And this is where our last outline is going to be here. This one isn't quite a chiasm. It's more just a progression. Um, well, I guess more correctly, it is a parable in in 1 through 7 that is then explained with kind of a repetition of themes through the rest of the chapter. So in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, you have a parable about a vineyard that describes how God did all the work for his vineyard. We read, especially in chapter 2, he dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, he hewed out the wine vat in it, and he looked to it to yield grapes. God did all the work for his vineyard. Think of, again, all of the stories of the Old Testament up to this point. All of God's provision and care and love for his people. And he expected it, and rightfully so. He expected that all this care and work that he put in the vineyard would produce good grapes, useful grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And we might look at that and be like, okay, well, wild, like maybe just use them for something else. Like the word there is for inedible. And not just inedible, but like useless. You can't even use them for something else. You can't use it for wine. You can't use it for ointment or whatever else you want to use it for. It's just completely wasted harvest that God can do nothing with. And it's, he goes on in three, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more? was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and, I, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they will not rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In case the people missed what was going on in the first six verses, he makes it really explicit to them in verse seven, and then just continues to drive the point home for the rest of the chapter. It's like, in seven, it's like, in case you missed the point, the vineyard is you. The vineyard is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And it's beautiful what he does in the words at the end here. You don't really see it in the English. Some translations try to kind of copy what's going on. But the words for he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, and then righteousness, and behold an outcry. Justice and bloodshed, and then righteousness and outcry actually sound almost exactly the same, but they mean the exact opposite of each other. One way to 
try to convey it into the English of what's going on. Basically, he looked for justice or the correcting of wrongs, but found only bloodshed or wrongdoings. He looks for correcting of wrongs, but found wrongdoing. And then in the next couplet there, he looked for righteousness or what is right and found only the outcry of those who had been wronged. That's the wordplay that Isaiah is doing. Basically, God found the exact opposite of what he should have rightfully expected from his vineyard. And then in verse 4, we read that the Lord had so spent himself for the good of the vineyard that there's nothing more that he could have done. And then he vows, therefore, to destroy the vineyard as spelled out in um, the consequences of 13 through 17 and then 24 through 30. For we see in this section here, we see, um, like in the outline there, you have two woes, which are basically the bad fruits that he found, the wild grapes, the unuseful, useless, worthless grapes seen through the first two woes in 8 through 12. And then you have the consequences in 13 to 17. And then you have a doubling of that. So you started with two woes, and now you have four woes that make it even more explicit what's going on. More bad fruit. And then at the end, you have the consequence again. And the first consequence in 13 through 17, you see, therefore my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her, man is humble. And each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low. And the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lamb graze in their pasture and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. There's a lot of literary beauty that's happening here. I don't have time to dig into all of it. But did you catch those themes from the previous chapters that he just threw in there? That the, the theme of exalted and brought low, the theme of the punishment on the leaders being sent away, he's tying it all back together for you now in chapter 5. It says, um, basically, the consequence after the first two woes that he spells out is exile. And then he gives four more woes in 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who basically are trying to get all the sin they can, is the imagery going on there, who say, let him be quick, let him speed to his work that we may see it, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant in mixing strong drink. Woe, or sorry, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And then starting in 24, you have another section of consequence. You have, therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their roots will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Exact phrase stolen and like borrowed again from chapter 1. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all of his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will rise. Sorry, he will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly and speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, nor a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, and their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Their young, their young lions that roar and they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it in that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. You notice how 5-1 began with a promise. Let me, let me sing for my beloved a love song. It starts off like, oh, it's going to be positive. And then you end with this superhuman army growling like lions, seizing and tearing their praise, and all falls to darkness. And that's how these opening chapters end. For if all had been done by the Lord for his vineyard, what more could he do? What else can be done? As far as chapter 5 is concerned, Darkness has 
the last word. The shutters come down on the people of God. The Lord raises his signal for nations from far away to come and devour the land. And all ends in bitter, ominous darkness. This, this is the heart-stopping truth on which Isaiah ends this introduction. And the conclusion out of which we will see the answer. The answer to the question of how on earth can light and the promises of God come from this darkness that is what leads into chapter 6 and the rest of the book. But that's where these introductory chapters want you to end, to sit in that darkness and say, God's done everything. He's done everything that we in our human abilities would think would make sense to do. What what now can he do? These chapters form a backdrop of darkness to the call and ministry of Isaiah. They tell sometimes in very graphic detail, of the coming exile and describe what is going to happen. And they also tell many times why it happened. The Lord is not unjust to bring exile and destruction. We read the court scenes, we read the woes, we read again and again lists and explicit details of exactly what people have done that brought on this judgment. They were his vineyard that he had lovingly tended and protected, and they had completely despised him. These chapters give a poetic summary and justification of what we are about to see played out through the events of chapters 7 through 39 that will end in the promise of exile. They also, however, contain visions of restoration and hope that we will see played out in the chapters of 40 through 46. And this content is beautifully arranged to dramatically present this message and prepare the reader for what is about to follow by making the reader wrestle with this darkness and ask the question of how. So the last outline I have for us is this entire section, chapters one through five, as we are prepared to work to, to move into six and the answer to the question. Chapter one, one through 31, it can be summarized as judgment and darkness with, with a little bit of hope. There's verse 9 and there's verses, the last like three or four verses at the end, they have some hope. And then you have 2, 1 through 4, which is a future of restoration and glory for a new Jerusalem. And then you have right after that, 2, 5, all the way to 4, 1, a big section of judgment and darkness with really no hope. And then in 4, 2 through 6, you have a really tiny, short uh, future restoration and glory. And then in 5, 1 through 30, you again have an entire section, entire chapter of judgment and darkness which leaves you begging the question, is there no hope? How is this going to happen? What is interesting about the arrangement of this material is that both the, chi- the shape of the chiasm and also leading into like what ends the chapter 5 and leads into chapter 6, both of them really end with no hope and seem that judgment has the last word. This entire big section in the middle, 2, 5 through 4, 1, has really no hope in it. And then at the very end, you're left with, Well, it's just darkness now. We're all destroyed and teared up by roaring lions. And yet, nestled in this darkness, when all hope seems lost, we are given two almost jolting, bright lights of a restored Jerusalem, a faithful city. Especially in terms of verse count, you essentially have large sections of darkness and judgment with small but bright sections of restoration and hope. Hidden in the darkness, but somehow shining through it, somehow being transitioned from judgment and darkness into hope, you somehow have these small sections of hope. A great example of this, if you turn back real quick to chapter 3, there's a drumbeat that becomes very surprising as you follow it. And you read in 3.18, in that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets and the headbands and basically talk about the rejection and the takeaway. And then in 4.1, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying we will eat. So basically have this, this takeaway, this rejection, this desperation. The first in that day is rejection and destruction and taking away. The second takeaway is desperation. And then all of a sudden in that day, the third, the same phrase, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will be the pride and the honor of the, 
of the survivor. Somehow in that day, this third drumbeat of in that day turns from judgment and rejection and desperation to hope and union and marriage and purification. How, how did that happen? Somehow judgment is transformed into hope, salvation, restoration, and glory for those who place their trust in God. When all hope seems lost, even though his people have completely abandoned him, God will not abandon his people. He will make a way of restoration. He will restore and he will purify. I think that the arrangement of these introductory chapters is entirely on purpose to make the point that when even when all seems dark, even when there seems like there is no hope, the plans and the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. He is worthy of our trust, even when we look around us and it seems like there is no reason to trust him. Even if faithfulness to God does not change our circumstances, for even those who were faithful during this time were still part of those who were exiled. Faithfulness to God, even though it doesn't change our circumstances, faithfulness to him and trust in him will one day be rewarded with a future of glory with him and is rewarded even now in his presence and comfort in our circumstances. We read a lot about armies in destruction and how God uses them for his judgment and for his cleansing because we read that the Lord of hosts the Lord of armies will have the final victory. His purposes will be accomplished. And not just the final victory, for throughout this book we will see how God uses judgments and even the plans and armies of the enemy to accomplish his purpose. You'll see that many times throughout this book. From beginning to end, we will see that throughout the book of Isaiah, God's light cannot be extinguished. And one last thing we see here and throughout the book is that God's people are those who not only say they believe, but also show it by living a life that shares the heart of God. Something picked up in the New Testament, James 2 and many other places as well. In his condemnation of the people in chapter 5, the word woe, or alas, depending on your translation, occurs six times. This is again a chapter of darkness and judgment. This is in fact more times than any other chapter in the entire Old Testament. In fact, the only other chapter in the entirety of Scripture that has this many woes, actually has one more, is Matthew 23. When Jesus gives his series of woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, hmm, leaders of the people who were living contrary to the word and the heart of God and oppressing the people and rejecting God's truth, who in their case was literally standing right in front of them. But you have leaders living in opposition, not living the heart of God, oppressing the people, rejecting the truth. Oh wait, are we talking about Jesus or Isaiah here? It's the same circumstance. The leaders and the people in Isaiah's day and the Pharisees in Jesus' day were doing supposedly the right actions of worship. Read that in chapter 1 of Isaiah. They're doing all the motions. And the Pharisees, they have laws upon laws upon laws of doing all the right motions. But they don't have the heart of God. And they are living in direct opposition and rebellion to him. What is amazing, though, is just as God calls those who practice empty worship in Isaiah's day, he calls them to repent in Isaiah 1, 18. In that beautiful verse, come now, let us reason. Just as God calls the people in Isaiah's days to come to him and be cleansed of their sin, so we read immediately after the woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 that Jesus longs to gather Jerusalem to himself. In fact, the places where we see Jesus most mad are also the places where we see him most grieved. There's another beautiful story in Mark 3 where Jesus is in the tabernacle on the Sabbath. There's a man with a withered hand. And he's basically challenged by the Pharisees saying, are you going to heal him? The, impl the implication being, are you going to break the Sabbath? Are our rules of the Sabbath, which say you shouldn't heal, you shouldn't do work on the Sabbath. And we read 
that Jesus was angry at them. But then right after that word of anger, we read he grieved over the hardness of their hearts. And he healed the man as a visible way of saying, you've completely missed the point. So in these contexts of anger, these contexts of woe, we also have God's heart of grief for those who reject him. Because woe, woe is a word of judgment, yes. But we also see consistently throughout scripture that it is a call to repentance. It is a judgment for what you were doing, but a call to repent and change. The same God who is our judge also longs to be our savior. If you don't know him, he says, come. And if you do know him, but have maybe not been living like it, and are maybe ashamed that what you have done would make him want nothing to do with you right now. To you, he still says the same thing that he said in Isaiah 118. He still says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He is the God who longs to turn woe into welcome home. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for these chapters. Though they seem dark, they are not darkness without hope. That they remind us that no matter what the world looks like, no matter what our circumstances look like, that darkness cannot overcome you, that you are always worthy of our trust. I thank you that you look into our darkness and still love us. As we talked about in Sunday school today, that you, in fact, your family line is filled with terrible sinners. That you look to and say, woe for what you have done, but also say, come, that you long to welcome people into your family, to welcome back those who have gone astray. I thank you that you never give up on us and are far more faithful than we could ever be. And I pray that as we continue through Isaiah, that we see your faithfulness, we see that your plans astound us, that you come up with new things when we feel like all hope is lost. And that you will be seen as glory, glorified and exalted above all. I pray all this in your name. Amen.